everyone. My name's Phil. I'm one of the assistant pastors here. It's lovely to see you all um, and lovely to see lots of new faces. Hope we get a chance to say hello over a coffee afterwards. I'm going to be taking us through our sermon today, looking at the passage we've just read. Um, miscommunication on my part. Um, the all-age slot was about today's passage, not last week's. Um, let me pray and then we'll dive in. Oh, and um, before I do that, just again to mention there are some worksheets for children or teenagers as well there's some questions that will be helpful for the teenagers to follow along with the service the sermon um, they're just outside in the hallway um, if you need one of the host team to bring one to you and some pencils just raise a hand and um, hopefully they can do that um, seems like we're all right excellent let me pray Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son, your word to us in person and in written form and that he speaks to us today through what's been read. And we pray, would you give us soft hearts, would you give us listening ears, would you give us the ability to understand. And Lord, we, where today's message is hard, we pray that you would, um, that you would give us humble hearts that are quick to repent. And where there is hope and where there is rich encouragement and something better to base our lives upon in, in your gospel, we pray that that would be clear for all. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have a question to begin with, which is, how widespread is the assumption that more money or more stuff can secure long life or happiness? How widespread is that assumption? Yeah, it's everywhere, everywhere. I, I used to see endless adverts online claiming that if only I could build up a 200,000 pound investment portfolio, I'd be able to retire securely. And Google cookies clearly took a while to realize that I now work for a church rather than a financial <laughs> services firm. I think they've caught up now. <laughs> um, now, maybe most of us will never aspire to have that kind of money, but I'm sure a few of us might feel decidedly insecure if our savings drop below five figures. And the assumption that you know, having more is, is, is necessary to long life and happiness, it can be there in other things too, can't it? Like the yearning to have a bigger house or a more stylishly decorated and furnished house or even simple-seeming things like having the latest iPhone or the latest Samsung Galaxy, or in my case, probably another pair of shoes. And what about when people say, you only live once to justify yet another expensive evening out or yet another festival or yet another once-in-a-lifetime holiday? The assumption seems to be that even if you can't secure long life, at least you can secure happiness by cramming in as many great experiences as possible. So the assumption that having more of something secures long life, or at least happiness, is everywhere. And even when the presenting motive is fairness, how often is the underlying motive actually greed? 
It's there in trade disputes between wealthy nations complaining at high tariffs or unfair subsidies. It's there in family feuds about inheritances when someone dies, which often bring out the worst in people. It's there in complaints from little children. They've had their turn. It's my turn now. It's not fair. And even as Christians, isn't it so easy for us to see the material aspirations of our culture around us, to see the high standard of living that many of our peers enjoy, and to think that we need the same in order to be happy. Isn't that easy? And after all, why, why shouldn't we enjoy the same as everyone else? It's only fair, isn't it? But as we saw in today's passage, Jesus finds serious fault with these attitudes. And he sees right through pretenses of fairness. Which is why in verse 13, when the man in the crowd asks Jesus to judge a dispute over inheritance, Jesus wastes no time in cutting to the chase and warning about greed. His kingdom is built on a very, very different set of assumptions about life. And it's only when we live by those assumptions that we will actually find lasting security and happiness counterintuitive as that may seem. We're not going to deal with all of the reasons for that today. Um, this passage, verses 13 to 21, is very much linked with verses 22 to 34. We haven't got time to do all of it this week, so we'll do the next bit next week. But let's make a start, and let's see that Jesus gives us more than enough food for thought as we think about possessions and what really matters. So, to pick up Jesus' statement in verse 15, why, why should we be on our guard against all kinds of greed or covetousness? That's the, the basic question in this passage. And the reason Jesus gives is that life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And what does he mean like by that? Well, Basically, that no amount of possessions can ultimately secure long life or happiness. Or to put it another way, wealth does not guarantee either quantity of life or quality of life. The parable illustrates this because the rich man cannot do a single thing to control the hour of his own death. He may have enough food harvested to keep him in luxury for many years, but it provides no guarantee that he will stay alive for many years to enjoy it. Abundant food and wealth cannot by themselves preserve life. And that's because God alone is sovereign over the hour of death, as we see in verse 20. And in that hour the rich man's wealth will count for nothing. He can't take it with him. He can't use it to negotiate with God and buy more time. The wealth wasn't even a sign that he had God's lasting favor because God calls the man a fool. 
In fact, it seems that God deliberately cuts short the man's life because of his entirely selfish plans for using that wealth. And so do you see that simply having wealth is no guarantee that we will live to enjoy it? The rich man was apparently in good health. He clearly expected to live for many years. And we might be very healthy too. But death can come in so many forms, can't it? From undiagnosed cancer that's spread undetected until it's too late, to road traffic accidents, to carbon monoxide leaks and gas explosions, terrorist attacks. We could go on, couldn't we? We cannot control the hour of our own death. And so if we've placed our hopes for security and for long life and happiness in grabbing more and more stuff, we could very easily be disappointed. Think of the number of great musicians who got very rich and then died relatively young. Whitney Houston, Tupac, Freddie Mercury, Kurt Cobain, Bob Marley, Jimi Hendrix, Elvis Presley, Michael Jackson, John Lennon. Again, we could go on. Those nine people alone amassed fortunes ranging from $20 million to $800 million in John Lennon's case. But none of them were older than 50 when they died, most of their deaths being accidental. And Cobain and Hendrix were only 27. So abundant possessions cannot secure long life or happiness. But you might be thinking, yeah, but plenty of rich people do live to a good old age, don't they? Isn't, isn't there a good chance that I'll get away with it? And that's true, you might well have wealth and live to a good old age. But we shouldn't miss the more subtle warning of the passage. When God calls the rich man a fool, it doesn't bode well. As we've seen, wealth was not necessarily a sign of God's favor. Jesus says earlier in Luke 6, verse 35, that God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. He gives good things indiscriminately sometimes. But that doesn't mean he's pleased with those people. Only a right response to his blessing, one of repentance and faith in Jesus, can secure his lasting favor. And so God doesn't welcome unrepentant, greedy fools into heaven. If you're in any doubt about that, you can read on a bit later in Luke 16, in verses 19 to 31, the parable of another nameless rich man and a destitute, diseased beggar called Lazarus, and you can see how it ended for the rich man there. There is a double warning in today's passage, as I've said. Not only is it impossible to secure long life and happiness through grabbing more and more possessions, but it is also impossible to secure eternal life that way. And so if you're here today and you're not following Jesus, 
and you're not seeking to build your life, shape your life around his priorities, please ask yourself, well, what am I living for? Why am I, what am I placing my security in? And will that count for anything before God? And if you realize that you're trying to secure lasting happiness apart from God and apart from his king, Jesus, please be warned. It isn't going to end well. But what about for the rest of us? What about us as Christians? As I said at the beginning, most of us struggle with a desire for more, don't we? So how should we respond to this parable? Well, firstly, we, we cannot assess the state of our own hearts accurately based on one-off moments of greed. Usually those one-off moments are not a clear indicator of what's really going on. What we need to ask ourselves is what is the general direction of travel in my life? Is it towards accumulating more and more money or possessions or experiences for myself? Is it towards having ever bigger and better possessions or experiences for myself? Always wanting the next upgrade, as it were. Or is there more of a settled contentment? Am I generally thankful for what I've got? Am willing to part with cash or even possessions for the good of others? Is the number or the value of my possessions fairly stable or even decreasing because I'm more concerned with generosity? These are good, if difficult, questions to ask ourselves. And if we find that the general trend of our lives is towards storing up more and more, as I think sometimes my life looks like that, then we need to repent. It's clear from the parable that this is not the course that our loving Heavenly Father has set out for us. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So on the one hand, Greed is a very serious sin, isn't it? We often single out certain sexual sins as if they're worse than any other. But greed is just as bad, Paul is saying, and I would argue it is more pervasive in our culture and more easily missed. So it is something to repent of, something to turn our backs on. But for all of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ and are wrestling with greed, 
wrestling in his strength, Paul says we are no longer defined by that sin. We may struggle with its allure every day. (laughs) That struggle may be pretty hard. It might feel like greed is some kind of monstrous kraken raising its tentacles out of the depths to snatch us back into the waters of death. But if the general direction of our lives is that we are walking away from greed, however slowly, however falteringly, it's evidence that faith in Jesus has triumphed. And if we are trusting in him, then we are no longer defined by our sin. We were washed, as Paul says. We are accepted as something clean and beautiful in our Father's sight. That's because we are covered with Christ's perfect life of self-giving generosity. Like a a stunning three-piece suit or ball gown that, that hides the ugliness beneath. And wonderfully, the the Spirit is helping to purge that ugliness from our hearts. Bit by bit. Isn't that good news? So whether we are coming to recognize greed in our lives for the first time this morning or for the thousandth thousandth time, the gospel is good news. It gives us the hope of forgiveness as we repent and then continue to repent day after day of our earthly struggle with sin. But more than that, Jesus gives us something better to live for. And this is where I want to finish. Jesus gives us something better to live for. Greed is actually a form of idolatry, as Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 5. It sets itself up as a God, demanding our loyalty and our service, but it gives nothing in return. It it is, in fact, a, a slave master and a liar, it sets itself, um, it makes empty promises, it laughs at us when we believe them, and then it just cracks the whip and drives us on in this futile chase for happiness that is never going to come. And it cannot deliver because the possessions that greed tells us to crave are lifeless. They are creatures, they are not the life giving creator. So they have no power in themselves. Asking your bank balance or your iPhone or your Mercedes to make you happy or prolong your life is like a light bulb asking a lump of rock to give it electricity. Only the life-giving creator, who we were made to worship and to enjoy forever, has that power to satisfy. And greed turns us away from him and it strips us of our dignity and our happiness and it reduces us to wretched slavery. But in verse 21, Jesus hints at something different if we are rich towards God. That security, that happiness which we long for becomes possible not just on this earth but in the life to come. And that's because Jesus releases us from that slavery of greed 
and he enables us to reorient our lives. So what does it mean in verse 21 to be rich towards God instead of storing up for ourselves? Well, I think it means to have an abundant supply of the things that God values highly. An abundant supply of the things God values highly. And Jesus has even told us what those things are back in chapter 10, in verses 27 to 28. What does God most want from us? To love him with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our strength and with all our mind and to love our neighbors as ourselves. To do that is to be rich towards God. And as we follow Jesus in our new lives of daily repentance, we cannot help but orient our lives outwards towards God and towards neighbor. To the extent that we fix our eyes on Jesus each day, we come to bask in his goodness, to love him more. And as we love him more, we want to be like him. We want to love the things that he loves. A little like the person who wants to dress just like their favorite musician or actor or film star. To go vegan and to become a climate activist because that's what their favorite person does. Only Jesus' righteousness is far more beautiful a thing to clothe ourselves in. And his kingdom is a far more noble cause to support. And when we grow in love for Jesus, when we gr- then we will grow in love for God the Father and we will grow in love for neighbor. So what does that look like, that love look like finally, when it comes to possessions? I think it looks like a thankful heart and an open hand. A thankful heart and an open hand. A thankful heart because, as we've said already, we didn't earn them. We don't have the right to these things. We simply receive them as good gifts from a God who is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. And an open hand because they aren't ours to keep. Yes, as as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So it's not wrong to enjoy the things that God gives if we do so with thankfulness. We're not meant to live lives of pure asceticism. But I'm not sure that's the danger for most of us in the West. And Paul, like Jesus, goes on to make very clear that God gives possessions so that we can bless others too. Through generous sharing, not through storing up for ourselves. And as we'll see in next week's passage, God actually gives us something far better to store up in exchange for our possessions now. And he gives us ample reason to trust that we won't be left starving and helpless if we give away more than we keep. But for now, we simply need to see that Jesus has given us a far more beautiful and noble and dignified way to live our lives. Not in slavery to created things which degrades us and dishonors God. But in grateful 
worshipful obedience to a saviour who has taken away our guilt and shame. A saviour who has released us from slavery and given us honoured places in his kingdom. A saviour who has freed us to enjoy his material blessings without needing them to be anything other than passing glimpses of his own goodness. Things that point away from themselves and up to him. And a saviour who gives us the noble and dignified task of sharing with a broken world and so offering hope to those in need. Isn't that a better way? Isn't that better than slavery? And isn't, won't our lives be more distinctive? Won't they be a more beautiful witness before the watching world as we embrace Jesus' purpose for us and our possessions? People are going to notice that in Western culture, aren't they? So let's take a minute to ponder where this might be most relevant for us. Then I'll lead us in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for the way that you are so honest with us. It is painful sometimes for us to hear your words, but we thank you that you leave us in no doubt about the futility of putting our hope in possessions, in wealth, in having more and more experiences or bigger and better things. And Lord, we ask your forgiveness to the extent that we have believed those lies. To the extent that our lives have been more focused on storing up for ourselves than on, on being rich towards God and therefore towards other people. Thank you so much that we are we are trusting in you we are no longer defined by that greed by that sin thank you that you have broken its power over us lord we struggle because we still live in the now and not yet we still live in our earthly bodies even though you have given us new life by your spirit so please help us in the daily struggle to to repent of greed, the daily struggle to see through its lies. Help us, please, to see your kingdom and your purposes as something more and more beautiful, more and more desirable. Help us to see how you have loved us in an utterly selfless, generous way. And please keep giving us the strength to daily put greed to death. Amen.